Uh, today we're going to be uh, actually talking with uh, A.C. Thompson, uh, investigative reporter with ProPublica, who has written a piece in The Nation that just came out, uh, dated today, uh, in the issue of The Nation, talking about Katrina's hidden story, uh, A Race War. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you for this, uh, at this short notice. Uh, why would you call it a race war? You know, I actually, that, that's not my language, and, uh, and I actually would have called it, I would have written a different headline, but you know how it is in the media business, oftentimes yeah. writers don't write their own headlines, oh, you know. Sure. Sure. Um, but I, I think the, the key thing to, to communicate through the piece is that there was a, a string of, of crimes uh, that basically involved white, white men targeting black men uh, with guns that has gone un- uninvestigated and unexplored. So however you want to characterize that, that's, that's the heart of the story there. This, uh, was this kind of, uh, was this ignored by the local media or they didn't know about it or what? You know, I mean, what I found was that there was a handful of stories written um, in daily newspapers around that time period about this group of people, um, white folks in this neighborhood called Algiers Point, which stands uh, on the west bank of the Mississippi River in uh, New Orleans. And that there was a handful of stories that had been written um, about this group, and most of them were very sympathetic and were um, very positive. Like, this is a this is a, a cool group of people who are kind of the ultimate neighborhood watch who are just taking care of their neighborhood and protecting it from, from looters. And the, the problem was is that if you actually started spending more time on the ground there and spending more time talking to the people who are actually holding the guns uh, during this time period and uh, you met the people who actually were targeted by the guns, it didn't look um, so benign. These were vigilantes. They were, you know, they describe themselves as vigilantes in some interviews, uh, as as um, militia, as a militia in some interviews. Um, you could call them whatever, but they were definitely people who decided to uh, enforce the law on their own or create the the law on their own and act as um, you know a little army, a little a little uh, police force in their neighborhood. And they knew they could get away with it. You know, I don't know. I don't know what they knew, but what what they these folks told me when I interviewed them is they said, "Look, the police were not around. We didn't see the police at all." And when I interviewed cops, they said that they basically spent very little time in that that area. Yeah. And and they and the vigilantes said, "Look, we when we saw the police, they said to us, if you need to kill somebody, if you need to shoot somebody because they're breaking into your property, just do it, and you can leave their body on the side of the road, and that's fine. You know, that's what that's what the vigilantes claim. Um, you know, the like like I said, um, the the law enforcement sources I spoke to, a lot of them weren't familiar with the activities of this group, um, and and it's interesting to me as as well. Um, one thing that I that I heard a lot, and I, I do believe it to be accurate is that, um, you know, uh, the white folks that lived in that area don't really seem to have been subjected to uh, the curfew that was in effect during that time period, in the, the immediate weeks after Katrina. I mean, all, all the white folks they interviewed in that area said, oh, you know, occasionally the police would drive by and, you know, 
even if it was after curfew, they didn't hassle us. They didn't tell us we had to go back in our houses or anything. And uh, it was interesting to me because I, I, that's not something I heard from any black folks I spoke to at all. So I, I thought that was significant. So the, the, the black folk that were subject to the curfew? Yeah, I have, I have never interviewed an African-American who stayed through the storm who, who said that, that, that the police just uh, ignored the, the curfew when, when it applied to them. So the the people that were shot were they uh, accused of being, or the vigilantes thought they were breaking in, or was that just a cover story? You know, I mean, what what you heard, what I heard over and over again from from the vigilantes, the militia people, is they they say, oh well, we had to shoot these people because they were criminals, they were gangsters, they were outlaws, they were thieves, they were looters. You know, that that's what I was told over and over again. The the problem was, is that in numerous cases there didn't really look to be evidence that people were actually engaged in criminal activity. So for example, Donnell Harrington and his cousin Marcel Alexander and friend um, Chris Collins, you know, these guys, as far as I can tell, had nothing on their minds except going to the evacuation center that was set up in the Algiers Point neighborhood to try to get out of town and leave. And um you know, Donnell at the time uh, worked for, for the Brinks Company as an armored car driver, so he was the kind of person that um, businesses trusted with large amounts of money, um, but it seems that when he walked into this neighborhood, he was assumed to be a criminal and a looter and um, was shot twice and nearly killed um, because of that. And the people who did the shooting basically took Chris and Marcel um, prisoner and threatened to kill them, uh, according to Chris and Marcel. And, and what what the victims say is they say, like, these guys thought we were thieves. They thought we were breaking into houses, and, and they threatened to kill us because they thought we were breaking into houses. Um, you know, and, and the vigilantes would tell me, they would say, you know, when we... Um, heard that people from the Lower Ninth Ward, from the other side of the river, from other neighborhoods were coming into our, our neighborhood, um, we figured that crime was going to come with them, and we, we figured we were doomed, that we would be killed, and so we got out the guns. So did, uh, did, did the police do anything in, in this case? You know, I don't know the police doing... Uh, here's the thing. I don't know the police taking any significant action um, in regards to crimes that occurred in the days after Hurricane Katrina, except in, in a handful of cases. And those cases would be the following. There was a police officer who was shot not that far from, uh, from Algiers Point, and the police have vigorously um, tracked down and... Um, prosecuted the, the people who are allegedly responsible for that, and I actually think there's some interesting stuff that's going to come out of that. Um, and in two cases, the police shot and killed people, one on the Danziger Bridge and one in front of the convention center, mm. um, two different incidents in which multiple people were shot. Um, and in those two cases, the police have, there has been some law enforcement action um, as far as at least investigating or theoretically investigating um, those are the only incidents that I'm aware of in which there was any kind of um, investigation for crimes that occurred after Katrina. And um, 
you know, from looking at the vast bulk of the autopsies that were done in the wake of the storm, it's clear that, that people uh, died under very suspicious circumstances. So, you know, I found people who'd been shot, and there had been apparently no investigation into their into their deaths. I found somebody who was shot and then set on fire, and there was no investigation into this person's death. Um, you know, I found another person who died of, of significant trauma to the head, and, um, you know, which may or it could have been just random or it could have been an attack. I don't know. And, you know, I have photos of people who are dead, bleeding out of wounds in their head on the streets, and uh, I don't think that there's been any investigation into these deaths. So... How many people? Um, how many people did you find uh, from talking or looking at these autopsy reports? You know, yeah. right off the bat, I found I found five. Uh, you know, uh, um, and that and the caveat there is that the records that I got from the coroner's office, which I got through a, a civil lawsuit, um, because the coroner's office refused to to divulge that information to me, um, were incomplete. They were not perfect. Um, they were missing lots of lots of key things. So, but right off the bat, that's what I found. And and there may be more out there. Could the police be? Uh, could the uh, justification? I suppose would they say? Could they say that they were short staffed? A lot of a lot of police were you know gone or were escaping the floods and didn't go to work. Yeah. Hold on one sec. <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah, I mean that's definitely that's definitely all true. It's all true. Um, as I understand it from, from sources within the NOPD, when uh, most folks came back to the city and things returned to some semblance of normal uh, after the storm, as I understand it, there was like three people left in the homicide unit. So there was not a lot of people there to do investigations. There was not a lot of people there to follow up on what happened. And before very long, new crimes were were occurring. That's definitely true. Um, however, the the question is is um, can you just forget everything that happened during that time period and just abandon any any semblance of investigation into those deaths and, and pardon anything that happened during that time period? And you know, I don't know that that that's what people want to do you know I, I don't know that, that that's the best that that's the best decision to make there you know also I mean it, it should also be pointed out that that clearly investigating um, crimes from that time period is not easy you know people it's hard to find people people have moved people's memories are um, are uh, you know not perfect it's three years later but it, I'm, I'm definitely disturbed by the idea that that you know, you could do anything you wanted during that time period, and the police don't care. You know, interestingly, the coroner said during that time period in a media interview, he said, well, if you murdered somebody this time, in this time period, you're probably going to get away with it. And that's turned out to be very, very true. Um, and that, that, to me, is disturbing. With, um, so can you maybe describe the community? Uh, LG's point is it, is it mainly a black community with... Uh, uh, can you explain what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me. That that's good for people to know who who aren't from down there. Um. So so the deal is is that is that um, Algiers Point is a little like a micro neighborhood that that's on the west bank of the Mississippi, and so it's not 
near the French Quarter or the Central Business District or any of that. It's across the river from all the the main neighborhoods of New Orleans. And um, to get there, you have to either drive over the bridge or take take the ferry. And it's it's a small small neighborhood. A lot of the houses are more than a hundred years old. They're beautiful beautiful houses. They tend to be very well maintained. Um, and and in in great repair, and it's a predominantly white area. Um, it's you know by census tract, it is it's largely white area, and um, yeah. it's a little bit more affluent than the surrounding neighborhood, the larger neighborhood which surrounds it, which is also part of New Orleans, and is called um, just Algiers. Uh, Algiers Point is called that because it sits right on a bend in the Mississippi River, uh, a point in the Mississippi River, and. Um, the greater Algiers neighborhood is, is a lot poorer. It's um, uh, far more African-American. It's largely African-American. Uh, and there's a clear sort of dividing line and uh, sense of difference between the two neighborhoods. There, were, um, you know, there was a forum that was set up during the, during the hurricane time period. And uh, on that forum, people set up different... Um, pages, one for Algiers and one for Algiers Point, and they were separate. And to me, that's kind of, um, you know, emblematic of, of how things work there, which is, you know, these two neighborhoods are completely interconnected. They're, they're right there next to each other. They're the two West Bank neighborhoods that are in the city of New Orleans, and yet people there felt the need to create two separate, um, two separate forums to discuss the problems that were occurring after the storm there. It's segregated. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not formally segregated. There are some African-American folks that live in um, Algiers Point. Uh, they started moving in, as I understand it, in the 60s, according to historians I've talked to. Um, but there's not a ton of ton of black folks there, for sure. And, and there's definitely yeah. some people that, that will... It, there's definitely some white folks uh, that will tell you things... Who, li- who live in Algiers Point that sort of reflect uh, a lack of understanding about about black culture, for sure, and, and sort of an apprehension. How about other people of color, like uh, Vietnamese? Uh, do they live in that area, or Algiers? Or? No, not, not so much. I mean, you know, the, the Vietnamese community is more um, uh, New Orleans East, mm. you know? So, so there's not so many... There's not so many um, Vietnamese folks in that area. There's, you know, in the city now, there's more and more Latinos, obviously, since the storm, uh, many of whom are, are Guatemalans. Um, you know, uh, people in the South tend to think that, that everyone is brown is Mexican, but that's not true. A lot, right. you know, a good number of the folks are, are Guatemalans. Um, but but this, in this area, it's really kind of a binary between white folks and black folks. So how did you, uh, how did you get involved in this? So was there a tip or how? Uh, about what happened. Uh, uh, I mean, what sparked your curiosity to do this research? Yeah, you know, the the, the deal was that um, I had a friend, Rebecca Solnit, who was working on a book. She's a, a great author and historian, and she was working on a book about um, basically the history of disasters. And so she was going to different places and examining sort of um, what happens in these moments of great crisis, and 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 her book is going to come out in 2009. And I think it's going to be very interesting to a lot of people and surprise a lot of people. But she said, "Look, there's 
this whole thing that went on in New Orleans that people are telling me about, and, and I don't know how to investigate it. That's not what I do. Um, but it's the kind of thing that you do, and so why don't you take a look at it? Um, and that was uh, 18 months before the story came out, so I spent the next 18 months working on it. Um, you know, and and I was really naive, you know, like, like let me just tell you that I had spent more than a decade reporting on crime and, and working as an investigative reporter, but I, I honestly think I was completely naive before I started spending a lot of time in New Orleans. And here's why, is I, I thought, like, yeah, well, I'll just go and I'll go to the coroner's office and I'll see whether there were really you know, death records from this time period that suggest people were, were shot. And um, I, I figured that would be an easy thing to do because in most places, that is a very easy thing to do. In New Orleans, it's not. In New Orleans, the first thing that I, I, I heard from the, the coroner's office is, well, uh, though it may be state law that says you're entitled to look at these autopsy reports, we don't follow the law, so we're not going to give you that information. Because the dead, the dead don't have privacy, so the records are public. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the New Orleans or the Louisiana state law says um, the basic information from an autopsy is um, to be made available to the public, and and you know that's basically uh, the kind of thing that the public is supposed to to have that information, um, so we can make some decisions about about. Uh, what happened to to people who were killed. I mean, if you can't get, if there's a controversy about somebody who's been killed by the police and the police say, oh, well, we didn't do anything to this person, it's all hype, and you get the autopsy and you find that the person was shot, well, then, you know, that then you have a better understanding of what happened or whatever, whatever in these kind of cases. And that's why um, there is a, you know, almost all states make those documents available. So in your report, you said that there were 11 cases of people either shot or, or killed, at least. And uh, did, was there any uh, file on any of these cases? You know, these all, the, the cases that, that I discussed there are, um, are all cases that people told me about or, or um, lived through, were shot, and, and discussed with me. And so, so that comes all from eyewitness um, statements. It comes from people who, who were holding the guns. It comes from people who were shot. And it comes from people who um, were right there and witnessed, did not hear about it, did not um, hear a rumor on the telephone, but actually saw this. Um, what, what I found was death records, it was hard to tell whether any of the, the suspicious deaths that I looked at came from there. What I did see was that uh, in state death records, there were four fatalities from that general area, um, which looked very suspicious to me because most of the people who died um, during that time period died in neighborhoods that were underwater. Right. And this area was yeah. not underwater. It never flooded. Hmm. Um, there was no water there whatsoever. So when you, when you saw people's bodies turning up in these areas, that looked um, very uh, suspicious as well. You know, I interviewed a, a surgeon, a trauma surgeon, who um, saved 
uh, the life of Don L. Harrington, who, um, you know, hmm. basically uh, got into his jugular vein, which had been blown out by a shotgun blast, pulled seven pellets out of his jugular vein, and stitched him back together so that he didn't die. Hmm. And, and when I interviewed him, he said, oh, without a doubt, there were more people who were killed uh, violently than, than has been previously discussed. And previously mentioned that the the murder numbers of murders are much higher than people would have you believe. And um, he said, you know, for me personally, I dealt with five to six um, gunshot wounds immediately after uh, the storm that were non-fatal, and these were people who were shot with handguns, shotguns, and assault rifles. And um, I dealt with you know three um, fatal gunshot wounds. Uh, as well, and two two of those are the Danziger Bridge case, um, the people who were shot mm-hmm. by the police on the bridge, um, and then the other one is is someone that we've never heard about and we've never seen. I've never seen the autopsy report for the third one, and so so it's just kind of a a, a way to let you know that that um, the records are not very complete, and um, the things that you hear from people who are very credible sources who were right there in the middle of it who. Uh, have no reason to distort the truth, suggests that there was a, a significant amount of gunfire um, going on in that area. And then I should point out that this hospital is very close to the neighborhood um, that the story is centered on. So the, the, vigilant, the vigilantes themselves, uh, they're not uh, remorseful, or uh, do they feel bad about what they did? No, no, I mean, they, they all feel like, like look, um, we shot people who needed to be shot because they were coming to our neighborhood to terrorize us and steal from us. I mean, that's what they all think. Um, I mean, that's what every, every other people that I, I interviewed um, talked to, uh, talk to me about. And um, Were they willing to talk to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They all, you know, people, some, some people I had to pursue a little bit, and some people were really um, easy to get on the record fairly quickly, um, you know, but I, I heard these things that made me think from people that I interviewed that, I, I don't know, there's like a, a wide gap in understanding in a lot of ways, you know, and so one thing that I heard from, from one uh, resident in that neighborhood, a white resident, is um, this person was convinced that any any um, young black man who came into the neighborhood wearing a white t-shirt was a gang member and that they were out to cause mayhem and uh and to me that that was just a remarkable um misapprehension because you know and uh wearing white t-shirts is is a black urban fashion trend that's been around for a couple years and and it doesn't connect to being a gang member um at all you know but but if your conception is in the middle of summer when it's incredibly hot um, that any any black man wearing a white T-shirt is someone who's out to is a gangster who's out to hurt you. Well, then you know things are likely to go very bad and and become very ugly quickly. You know. Well, for sure. Did the New Orleans police have the same attitudes? You know, I, the New Orleans police are are more savvy than that. 
you know, definitely, because they deal with this stuff um, day to day. I mean, but what the New Orleans police attitude was with me was like, we don't really care about this and we don't want to talk to you about it. I mean, that was their attitude with me. I think now they're taking it much more seriously and the um, superintendent of police has issued a statement saying he's investigating and looking into it. Um, but at that time, there was, there was not a lot of interest in it um, when I was asking them questions. So uh, Kanye's is uh, John Kanye's in Congress is now calling for investigation. He's he hasn't quite gone that far, but he's at least said that he's disturbed and and it's worrisome to him. And you know, hold on one sec. <coughs> Excuse me. And it'll be interesting to see if he um, decides that that there does need to be an investigation. And uh, there's a you, on the Nation website it mentions a people of color group in. Uh, in, San, in California. Um, yeah, Color that, Change. Yeah. They're the, the same group that, that um, sort of mobilized around um, the, uh, the Gina Six, the, um, the young men who were facing long, uh, possibly racially motivated prison sentences. And so, yeah, they're, they're organizing people, and there's a Facebook group around that and so forth. So there's a lot of, a lot of um, interest in in the subject what's the name of the facebook group oh let me you know if you if, <laughs> i can't remember the name of it hold on one sec yeah if you katrina, if, it probably says something about katrina yeah yeah probably you could search that on facebook face facebook yes uh we'll yeah. find it we'll find it and put it on the subversity website for the <laughs> listeners who are interested yeah uh, it, it's um demand justice for racist post-Katrina shootings oh, okay. on okay. Facebook. Okay. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, ProPublica. Uh, I understand that's a group of investigative reporters that was uh, that were put together uh, partly because newspapers uh, are laying off a lot of people and not really doing this type of research. Yeah, you know, the, the, the story with our organization is that um, we are a, a nonprofit newsroom uh, based in New York City. We've been around for about a year now and um, are helmed by Paul Steiger, who used to run the Wall Street Journal, and Steve Engelberg, who, who ran the investigations unit at the New York Times. And, and basically, we're trying to fill uh, that void that kind of is increasing, especially in, in smaller papers, um, as far as there being less and less investigative reporting and um, we're trying to, to, to do more of that. And, and basically, because we're a nonprofit, we don't have to, to worry about how much money we're spending to pursue these stories. So, like, for ProPublica, they spent, you know, a, about six months paying me to work on this story and sending me to New Orleans and, and so forth, which um, came on top of another almost year of work. But um, it was... It's the kind of commitment that not a lot of people are gonna are going to make in this business anymore with the the economics of it. Not a lot of people are gonna let you work on a story like that um, for that kind of length of time. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, and it's everybody's based in New York. Are, are there branches out other parts of the country? You know, we have a bureau in D.C. Ah. Um, so we are in New York and a, and a smaller bureau in D.C. And we're about thirty six people. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's cool. 
Well, thank you very much for coming to 10 o'clock. Uh, hey, thank you. Thank you, and I'll keep in touch. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, that was uh, A.C. Thompson, investigative reporter for ProPublica, who has an investigative piece in The Nation this week, uh, this past week, talking about what was what the headline called the race war, um, and he caused uh, these indiscriminate killings of uh, black uh, residents of Algiers in New Orleans post-Katrina. And earlier we uh, aired a repeat of our interview a partial repeat of our inter- partial clip of our interview with Bill Ayers on education policy. This is Dan Tsang signing off in this first edition of the new uh, season here on K- new, this new uh, winter quarter here at UC Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for listening.